You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It's odd, though, what makes you think about the truth. It's so rarely involved in the events of your life. I quit thinking about the truth for a time then. Its finer points seemed impossible to find among the facts. If there was a hidden design, living almost never shed light on it. Much easier to think about chess, the true character of the men, always staying the way they were intended, a higher power moving everything around. I wondered for just that moment if we, Berner and I, were like that, small, fixed figures being ordered around by forces greater than ourselves. I decided we weren't. Whether we liked it or even knew it, we were accountable only to ourselves now, not to some greater design. If our characters were truly fixed, they would have to be revealed later. It's been my habit of mind over these years to understand that every situation in which human beings are involved can be turned on its head. Everything someone assures me to be true might not be. Every pillar of belief the world rests on may or may not be about to explode. Most things don't stay the way they are very long. Knowing this, however, has not made me cynical. Cynical means believing that good isn't possible, and I know for a fact that good is. I simply take nothing for granted and try to be ready for the change that's soon to come. Richard Ford is the author of The Sports Writer. He's also the author of Independence Day, which won a Penn Faulkner and Pulitzer Prize, and the author of The Lay of the Land. His new novel is Canada. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure. This book unfolds on a very different landscape than your usual previous novels. So tell us what took you to the great wild open spaces of mid-America and Canada? Well, I've lived out there a lot of my life, it should be said. I've lived in central Montana, so uh, that part of the landscape was very familiar to me, and I've written about it in, in, in other books. To Saskatchewan, really, I went when I was in my 40s with Ray Carver and we went there and hunted geese and I think when we were there together it just made a claim upon us those wonderful prairies far off in the distance different from America you don't see mountains there was just something about that wide open plain where you saw across everything and not up at things as you would in the mountains that just made me think gee I have to put this in literature somewhere. In fact, Carver and I, when we were there together in about 1984, we we had such a good time that when we were heading back down to to Montana, we were laughing to see who would get it first into a story. Actually, I did. (laughs) Which story was that? It was in a story called Children, which is in in Rock Springs. Yeah. Did he follow up on that? He never did. He never it really did. wasn't his turf. He was just he was just sort of challenging me to see what I would say. We we used to we used to tease each other about things like that. His turf was not that turf. His, uh, he he had a lot of turfs, but that was not one of them. 
dueling riders. What an interesting <laughs> process. Uh, it was all in funsy, you know. It wasn't anything too serious. That was one of the great things about Ray. He was the most serious rider you would ever meet, but not sober-sided. He was full of merriment and full of good humor about his very serious work. In order to create a Saskatchewan for this novel, did you return or talk about how you prepared yourself for this novel? You'd spent you know, a number of years immersed in, as Frank Bascom in these, in these fabulous novels, uh, The Sports Rider, the, the Lay of the Land, and Independence Day. And that's a very different mindset. I mean, this is a, a, a polar opposite of where you are in Canada. So talk a little bit about the preparation you did to get to the start this novel. Well, f- first of all, Rick, I think everybody's got a lot of different voices in their head heads. Many people have many different landscapes with which they are familiar. So it, it, isn't, it isn't unusual, just in normal human goings-on, that we would have a lot of places that appeal to us and a lot of ways of speaking that, that are plausible and they can speak the truth. When I realized, after waiting 20 years to write this book and sort of accumulating 20 years' worth of notes that I was actually going to set a, a novel in Saskatchewan. At least half this book is set in Saskatchewan. I just did what I always do. I got in my car, and I started spending time up there, and I would just go around the same way I used to go around New Jersey, the same way I have gone around Paris, reading the landscape into my tape recorder and just seeing what I could notice and seeing what I could comment on, seeing if I actually said anything that seemed interesting or that would be interesting if I wrote it down on a piece of paper. And I did that a lot. I made many forays up to southwestern Saskatchewan and just rode around on the highways where this book occurs and through the towns that I describe. And so um, it it was very much doing that kind of hands-on research. So you drive around with a tape recorder in your car. That's so interesting. Do you transcribe what you write or do you just listen? No, I transcribe. I transcribe everything. In the process of transcribing something, which is which is not quite as mechanized as it might seem. Oh no, it's difficult and hard. Well, it's 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 tedious. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. But you're always hoping that you will have said something or have seen something that, when you see it written down or hear it in your own voice, uh, will sort of spark what Catherine Ann Porter calls a commotion in you. You know, and also there is the transference of things that are said into a tape recorder into words that appear on a typed page, which is the very crucial transference from, you know, lived life into artifice, really, that 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 is interesting to me and, and, and that really does spark in me what might become a story. You can say lots of things. You can hear lots of things. As we know, when we make notes lying in bed at night and wake up the next morning and look at them again... But until you see things on the page, they don't really have, for me, corporeal life as literature. It's so interesting, that process of translating the spoken word into the written word. This is a, is a, a means of 
just creating a, a character for yourself, I think. Do you, are you, you're your own character in, in these narratives then. It is. It is indeed that. And, and it is a transmogrification more than it's just a transferal. Eudora has, a, in one of her essays, called Place in Fiction. It's an essay I don't actually like very much, but I sometimes teach it, in which she talks about transferring landscapes onto the page. It's actually a, a misspeaking to say that, because when you see something and then you write it down, you have, you have not only altered it, but you, you, have, you have completely changed its character because you choose among the things that you put down from those many things that you see, and, and you give only a version of them. And so it isn't really transfer. It's, 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 it's reinvention. It's, 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 it's recreation. Or it may be, in fact, just creation. It's an internal landscape as much as it is an external landscape. Very much. I mean, you don't need a novel to go to southern Saskatchewan. You can go to southern Saskatchewan and see it. What you go to a novel for is that crucial selectivity that is literature. Henry James said the terrible whole of art is free selection. And what he meant by that was, in part, that when a writer chooses what she or he will put down on the page, there's a kind of terror in it because it's so crucial. It has to, it has to be better than the landscape from which it came. It's so interesting. You know, I, I so much love the, the narrator of this book, Del Parsons, and, and he's such a, a, a wonderful guide. And he enables you to do something because of his age and because of what he knows and what he doesn't know. He's at this kind of cusp where he has some clues about why adults think what they think and why they do what they do, but not many. That's exactly really. right. That's exactly right. And this make and you use this kind of tension as a plotting device. And I think that's a really fabulous way to I mean, this book is so compelling. Talk about developing that kind of uh perceptual plotting. Well, it's interesting. That's a that's a perception that 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 I think only a close reader would have about this book. You almost, uh, if if you're me, you always kind of hope that that wouldn't bubble up quite as clearly to, to readers as it does to you. I mean, he, I mean, I as the person who who writes this book, think that his partial perception is a not a plotting device as much as it is a, a device that creates tension and drama mm -hmm. in the book. And, and what that drama is made up of is the anticipation of something that is not known becoming subsequently known. And, and, and in that way, it is also a, a plotting device. Um, so the things that Dell doesn't know, which the reader will almost know better than he does, uh, become things that he wants to know, causes him to quest after, and, and thereafter in the book ultimately does get satisfied. And then the other thing in the book is that it's, it's told in a kind of tensive way so that there's a 65-year-old man whose life is being examined at, at the end of his working career, and that life is Dell Parsons' life because that's who Dell Parsons becomes at the end of the book, a 65-year-old teacher who's just retiring from teaching life in Windsor, Ontario. So that is something else that works, I think, at least I wanted it to, in a tensive way. The temporal setting of this book is a really interesting time, and I'd like you to talk about making the choice as to when you chose it 
because I think there's a lot of things in here that to me seem very like super pertinent for right now and not never seem topical, but the the way that the characters relate to the world and to one another. Well, I think that's just something that's sort of fortuitous in the book because I wasn't very interested in this book in the in the historiographic aspects of it. I I was just trying to find a plausible time uh, that the reader would recognize as being a transitional time in American life, which is to say the transition from the 50s to the 60s. There are two characters in this book, uh, Berner Parsons and her brother Dell, who tells the book Berner, when their parents are thrust into jail, Berner runs away to San Francisco and basically commences a life which is a sort of bohemian life, whereas Dell follows the sort of parental track, even though the parents are out of the picture, toward a much more conventional life. So in, in, in that way, there is a kind of historical moment. It's sort of, the, as I said before, the, the end of the 50s, the beginning of the 60s, one kind of life, a conventional life, and we're just talking in conventional wisdom here too, one kind of conventional life giving way to a more extroverted, um, bohemian, marginalized life, which his sister actually takes up and ultimately succumbs to. As you uh, started, you know, you have pages and pages of transcriptions of your of your own voice. How did you discover Dell's voice? And I and, and I agree that the dual voice, the the perception, the the older man telling the younger man's story, it does provide that kind of uh, tension all throughout the novel. But the per, the voice is, we see things from Dell's young point of view. And, and I think that uh, that's a remarkable accomplishment. Well, I had written stories in the 80s uh, in which there were uh, adolescent narrators. And what I noticed about those voices uh, when I looked at those stories, was how truncated those voices were, how much those voices were typified by conciseness, about an inability to articulate things which I simply, for them and through them, uh, could not articulate. And I thought if I'm going to write this novel and use some of the same formal features, which is to say of an adolescent narrator, I was going to have to extend myself in a way so as to be able to say more than I could have said in other kinds of books that were similar. And so then when I realized that, and by what that means is that the sentences have to be longer. The sentences have to be compound complex. They have to have a more intricate diction have to have different kinds of words, in other words, to, to choose. And that's when it became imperative for me to make sure that the adult Dale Parsons infuses the adolescent Dale Parsons with an intelligence which probably a 15-year-old boy wouldn't have. That was my mechanism for getting into the book a more complex, a, a more durable vocabulary. This is also... I think one of the best works of crime fiction I've read. And oh, good! So Say that. long, <laughs> so long, I, and it made me think of you know. I thought of Dostoevsky. I thought you know, uh, I he he could have been Raskolnikov, but Mother Nature ripped him off. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, I wanted to write a book 
about incident. I wanted to write a book about people robbing banks, people blowing up buildings, people committing murders, people committing kidnappings. Those, those were really, for me, when I finally got around 20 years after starting this story to writing it, those were the things I looked forward to writing more than anything. Because uh, I just thought, you know, every book has to have some fun parts for the guy who writes it. For me, those were the fun parts, even though I don't think that they are the most interesting and the most important things in the book. They were, for me, the sort of beacons along the way that I, that I looked forward to. I, wanted to. I wanted to write about a man robbing a bank. I wanted to write about a man committing two murders just in the, in the presence of my narrator. So when I got to those points, it was thrilling to do that writing. What's so interesting uh, about this book is at the outset, as we meet uh, Bev and, and Jeeva Parsons and, and uh, Dell and uh, Berner, his sister, <laughs> his sister uh, the, the twins, they seem like such a, a very interesting version of the American family. And I, I and, and it's not a, not a happy family, and it's not a, a, a family. They're, they're somewhat happy. Talk about creating this family dynamo, dynamite. Well, I thought they were a happy family. The, the, I guess the reason I wanted to write the book fundamentally was that I wanted to see if I could make credible to a readership how a happy family through acts of inadvertence, through acts of bad luck and circumstances, becomes a, becomes a, a sundered family. I, I didn't want them in any way to mm-hmm. seem to be ill-fated because, in my view, had they not had the bad luck that they had, which is to say to run afoul of some Indians who scared them to death and threatened to kill them, uh, that they would have gone on being a perfectly plausible and regular, as you said, American family. No, they weren't terribly happy, but they were functioning. They um, they they loved their children. Their children, the parents did. The, ch- the the kids loved their parents. I mean, I mean, I think if you maybe thinking about Tolstoy saying that happy families are all alike, I don't even believe that. I think happy families are all different, in fact. And, and happy families, if you look at them, have have strains of unhappiness in them which affection manages to overcome. Uh, so for me, that was the that is the kind of family that the Parsons are. A family where you to live next door to them would seem virtually Ozzie and Harriet. And, and it's the what I like is that that's certainly true. What I like is that it's the kind of the economic circumstances that they find themselves in, which are so reminiscent of what's happening to so many people today. Uh, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't, I really hadn't thought of that. And maybe when I started thinking about this book, that wasn't quite as, um, that wasn't quite as in my brain as it would be now. That's interesting. No, it's a timeless observation of what happens when when times grow hard. And I think that's a that that's what strikes me as so interesting about it is that hmm. we can see kind of external forces at work on this family against which they have virtually no defense. That's right. They don't have any savings. When when they run afoul of these Indians in a scheme to sell stolen beef to the railroad and the family ends up owing these Indians some money, they don't have any savings. They don't have anybody that they can borrow money from. He doesn't have a pension. They just barely are getting by. And that 
fact of their life, that misfortunate fact of their life and bad circumstances drives them to very extreme behaviors, which I think, as you are implying, is what happens to people. They, they, they get down on their luck and they do things that, that would never have been predictable about them. As the whole uh, first half of this book is so enjoyable to read, to just see Dell observe his parents, and he can kind of get them, but not quite get them. And I think this is such a masterful uh, piece of writing from you because it's so entertaining as a reader to uh, say, oh, he, he'll tell you something and you'll say, oh, yeah, don't you know it's this? It's this that's happening. <laughs> it's this, not that. Yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't know what it is. Right. But I, I think that that's one of the dramas of, of adolescence mm-hmm. as, you, as you transition out of being a child into the first, in the first inklings of adulthood. You're beginning to limn out what adult life is like, but so partially as not to you know, give you any confidence. And it creates a great anxiety in children. It creates a great sense of drama. Uh, it creates a sense of helplessness. It creates a sense of dependency, and 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 and, and in some instances, a sense of resentment because of the things you can't know. And all of those things are fairly powerful forces to deal with in a novel. And you deal with them well. And two, the constant presence in this book of the landscape. There, those big empty spaces with little bits of humanity uh, dropped. And there's a great scene where they drive out to the Indian reservation and there's upside-down car and there's just all this kind of wreckage. It reminds me of when I used to drive to my mother's house in Victorville. we drive through these really bad parts of town and it was just really terrible. And and I love that uh, sense of how... We see this outer landscape, but we know what we're really seeing is, to a large degree, what's contained within Dell. I, I would. Th- that's I think a thing a reader does for me. When I when I describe when I wrote that passage that you're describing, I was really principally interested in imagining something that would have a lot of interesting words in it. I mean, for me. For the most part, describing landscape is a, is is a is a, a tour of various dictions. It's a tour of various word choices. I probably do have some some remnant vision of things in my head from things that I have seen in my life. But when I set out to do that to write the actual lines, it has mostly to do with words rather than with word pictures. If I get actually good words and a good word picture, I feel like I've had a wonderful day. In the scene that you're describing, there are a lot of, I think it's car radiators which are which are used as a pig pen. I just thought, gosh, what a, what a great thing to be able just to say. For, for, you know, forget what it looks like. Does this material pour off the tip of your pen? And does it nothing <laughs> pours off the tip of my pen, Rick? I would be terrified if I thought anything was pouring off the tip of my pen. I'm such a I'm such a control freak about everything that goes down on the page because if I put something down on the page and I hate it, 
or and I have to and I have to deplore it and have to take it out. It sort of throws me for a loop. So I'm pretty resolute about not writing something down until I feel like I know that it's that it's ex- at least acceptable. So you don't undergo 35 revisions, or do you? I mean. Yes, I do that oh. too. <laughs> in other words, when it gets down onto the page, and I think it's acceptable, it's almost inevitable. No, it is inevitable that I will shortly after that go back over it and change it again. But it, there has to be a moment when you write something down that you think, well, this is acceptable, this is suitable, this is good enough, at least good enough until tomorrow. Because my habit is to is to go back over in the first hour that I sit down everything that I wrote the day before and edit it so that I can get sort of into the train of what to do next. This book is so beautifully plotted and the way the the characters unfold. And I think this is what's so interesting to me is that we're inside Dell, but all the other characterizations are completely external. I mean, he has no access to them, and he doesn't even really understand them very well. So it's this really interesting um, example of characterization, external characterization by inference. We as readers have to infer, oh, he's seeing this, but we know all that. It puts a lot of, it, it, it puts a lot of pressure on something that I think is probably the thing I do least well as a writer. And you're, and you're exactly right because he doesn't have these perceptive powers to intuit what kind of person he's dealing with. It causes me as the writer to have to describe people physically as, as well as I possibly can and hope actually that I'm doing things better than even I know I'm doing them. And, and there were a couple of instances in that book where I had, I had some real head-scratching to do about how to make this character somehow physically be what I want him substantively to be once Dell begins to kind of have enough experience to figure them out. But, but you have, at the, in the first instance, to describe someone vividly, if, 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 assuming I can describe anyone vividly, in a physical way. The vivid physical descriptions are certainly there. I mean, Dell's parents are just so, come so alive. And, and you're right, I, and I hadn't twigged to that until we talked how much the, the physical descriptions really enable us to get into the, ex, from the externals. You know, I couldn't have and didn't analyze what we were just talking about before I did it. But I did realize how much I was in describing the characters in the book who are not Dell. How much, how much I was reliant upon making them visible to the reader uh, who, who, who reads it. It hadn't occurred to me. A lot of things you know, when you're writing a book don't occur to you. You're as close as you are to it and as trenchant as you were trying to be in understanding everything. Lots of things actually don't occur to you till I'm sitting here talking to you and I think to myself, Christ, I hope I did that halfway well. But I wouldn't <laughs> have realized that it was because of Dell's character that I was having to describe these characters vividly, physically. I would just think to myself, this is my job to describe these people physically. Why am I not able to do it better than I'm able to do it? You need no do it no better. Well, I could do it better. (laughs) I could do it better. You know, well, never mind. I'm not going to. Oh, go ahead. (laughs) Well, no. I was just thinking about characters in the book that that I 
went back over it, went back over it, went back over, trying to make physically vivid. And finally, at Charlie the end Quarters. of the book, Charlie Quarters was not one of them. Oh, I thought really? I got Charlie Quarters okay. <laughs> but there, finally, you come to the end of the book and you think to yourself, well, I have done this now. It's taken me two and a half years to do this. I've done this as well as I can do it. It still doesn't make me as happy as I wish that it could make me. I, I, you know, certain things are easier than others. The reading experience of this book is so vivid and so intense and so immersive. And also it uh, feels very effortless. When I read this book, there's no effort to read it. There's no effort to put myself into the language. So I'd like you to just talk about the sculpting of the prose because it reads so fluidly. Well, that's what I want it to do. I want to try to write about the most important things that I could ever experience and to make that, as a reading experience, effortless. You know, I, I don't want to make the book, and this book, this book has some jogging to do in, you, in your heart structurally. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it goes along a certain way and then it changes course and never comes back to the way it went along before. That's not describing the prose, it's just describing the structure. So I knew that there was going to be inevitably some bumptiousness in the structure because I wanted it to be bumptious because what happens to Dell after his parents are thrust into jail uh, is, a, is, a, is a shocking and abrupt experience, and I wanted the structure of the book to betray that. That said, I didn't want the sentences to get in the way. I wanted the sentences to be felicitous, and I wanted them to be easy in your brain, and I wanted them to deliver the goods for the book in a way that the reader would like and think was beautiful. I mean, that's the it's one of the consolations of, of, of any art, that it will make beautiful what is, in fact, quite fierce often. There are so many. This book is one book that I could go back to practically any page and find three or four or five sentences that are the kind of thing that I just would want to read aloud to my wife or my kid and say, just listen to this. Isn't this so, so smart that he says this? And I think that's one of the things that... Um, but it, when you're reading it, it doesn't feel like or being lectured to it just kind of flows out of the character's perception. Well, that's what it should do. If it's if it's if it's on its if it's on its game, that's what it should do. It shouldn't there 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 shouldn't be a discrepancy between what the book is doing and what your perception of the character who seems to be doing it is. That said, uh, as as again the person who writes it, you would in the crucible that a novel is, like it if the book could somehow allow you to be smarter than you are. Uh, it's always the case that when you write books and work really hard, what you're trying to do is achieve some level of intellection, some level of, of intuition that probably isn't available to you, but that you happen to be writing this book at this moment in your life and that you could probably never achieve just in regular discourse. Well, I think it, it has to do with the processes that you've talked about, the the driving around and recording, the transcription, you internalize so much of the art that you're able to do things that you don't even necessarily know you're doing when you're doing them. And I think that's what makes the, your novel so powerful and beautiful. You do finally, though, have to get to the point before you part with the book to, to believe that you know pretty much everything, that that that, that you can't 
submit a book to an anonymous readership and hope that the reader will finish your book for you or complete certain things that you have inadvertently left incomplete. Uh, talk about the the process of of finishing a book. I mean, you you finish all the prose. You you think you've got something that you that you're happy with. Yes. And but it's not done yet, is it? No. Then you have about six months to get deeply sick of it. Um, and during that six months, I I will read the entire book to my wife, which takes about five weeks, all day, every day trying to account for every word, because that's what authorship means. Authorship means that you authorize every word, every stop, every paragraph break, every chapter. You authorize everything. And then you have still three or four more months to get even sicker of it than that, in which you have it copy edited, and it gets edited by whomever you know is editing your book. And, and you just have to pour over and pour over and pour over all these things. I wish there were some nicer way to finish books, but if you're, you know, you're going to try to write great books... And there's no, in my life, there's no reason to use my life except to try to write great books. It's the only way to do it. It just gets, you know, it sounds like I'm complaining because because it sounds bitter in a way. But I, And I suppose I'm not complaining because, as we were talking about earlier, that's the job. That's how, that's how you write books. You, 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 you get sick of them, and then you go on. But I often wish, and for this reason, I often wish that it wasn't quite so onerous just because that onerousness tends to bleed out into the life of the books so that what ought to be pleasurable to you, which is to say the moment when someone else reads your book, sort of gets tinctured by the, by the, by the labors that you know, got it to there. No, it does sound like I'm complaining. It's, I shouldn't do that. I don't have to do this. <laughs> I don't have to write books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I don't. The, the the quality of these books is is so amazingly high. I think I it, it's just right, it's so interesting to to think about the level of achievement that you're writing at now. And I wonder if you just care to talk about that, maybe a bit in a historical context. You teach literature. I do once in a while. I do once in a while teach literature, and I think uh, that that's a great Philip to me to try to write great literature if I possibly could. I mean, I do teach occasionally young writers, and what I teach them is literature. I don't much teach writing workshops. I teach them literature, and so I'm, I'm immersing myself even into my late age now in, in books that I have read before and would read again because I want to foist them off onto young writers uh, as, as useful models. So I, I, I guess I, it helps me keep my aspirations high as much as, as, as I can. Uh, as a reader, I'm, I'm dyslexic, and so I, I, I'm a slow reader, and my retention is good if I can ever get things into my brain to begin with. But it has caused me not to read trashy books, I can't I can't just blow through books. So if I'm going to read a book at all, it's going to be a, a great book because I'm going to spend a long time with it and I don't want to spend a long time with a book that's not as good as the great books can be. One of the things I really do love about this book is the the structure that you've created here and because we have uh 
Oh. Ozzie and Harriet rob, mm-hmm. rob a bank. <laughs> yeah, Ozzie and Harriet rob a bank, right. <laughs> and shortly thereafter, uh, we we have young Dell out in, in the, the Saskatchewan wilderness, essentially. Yes. And, and meeting some very eccentric and, and murderous. murderous characters. And I think that the way you handle the structuring of this novel is really interesting. And then there's a, a, a coda. Yes. And I really love the way that this novel is structured. So when you started out to tell this story, did you know what the whole structure was? Absolutely. Because I had all those years from the time I wrote the first 20 pages in 1989 until I started the book about three and a half years ago. I had all those years to think about it. This book was influenced in its structure by The Sheltering Sky by Paul Bowles. It was mm-hmm. a wonderful book, which I hope your listeners will go and find. It's a book like no other, but in particular, it's about two people who are going out into the Maghreb, um, and at a certain point, a woman and a man, at a certain point, the woman literally is stolen away by Bedou, and off they go into the desert, leaving the husband behind, and it never comes back. And I, I, when I read that, I, I just took my breath away because you can see it happening right in front of you. It's not this seamless progression of a 19th century novel from, from, from start to finish uh, in, in which one thing lays out predictably and agreeably into the next thing, which lays out into the next thing. It, it is realistic fiction. It is logical. It is scenic. It's, it's conventional in that sense, but for its remarkable structure. And I thought, God, it would be great to write a book that would somehow let you have that great flight of structural fancy that the book at a certain point just takes a turn and goes in a direction and never returns to its previous, to, to, to its previous uh, structure. And, um, and I don't think once you get beyond the end of part one and into part two that it makes any difference to you but I wanted that turn to be dramatic and then you get to the third part of the book and it would it was kind of necessary that the first two parts work for the third part to be to be able to be written at all and when I got to the third part I sort of felt my mind release in a way I sort of thought well gee I've I've done the hard part of writing this book this last part should be easy and in fact it was you know I so love the the scenes in Saskatchewan because they have this kind of uh, there's a constant tension for me as a reader that a, a real feel that anything can happen and and I really like that that feeling as I as I am am reading this book so I'm wondering, kind of, is that something that you deliberately induced? Is that something that I just read, or, or? well, it, it, I think I deliberately induced it mm-hmm. without without completely understanding that I was deliberately inducing it. Namely, that I I brought this 15 year old boy up onto the plains of Saskatchewan, where he had never been and where he knew no one, and almost by definition, in a situation like that given his benightedness, anything can happen uh, because of all of the things that not only could happen but that he is fearful of happening. 
I mean, he's out there in the middle of Saskatchewan, as you, as we have said, around strange and eccentric and murderous people. There is a sense of ominousness, which would be true of, of, of anyone. I more than invented it. I just inherited it based on where I put him and, and, and who I had around him. And speaking of who you had around him, I had so much fun, and I'm guessing you did, with, with Charlie Quarters. <laughs> Charlie Quarters is a Métis which means he's uh, part Indian and part French-Canadian and half white and half uh, Indian. And, um, yeah, it was it was wonderful to sort of dream him up, and that's what I actually did. I just dreamed him up. Uh, I didn't know much about Métis, but I, and I found out enough to know that in the way I drew him that it wasn't wrong that it was possible to have such a character as this, but it was actually quite wonderful to write him because I could have him be anything I wanted him to be, uh, both uh, consoling and helpful to Dell and murderous at the same time and slightly threatening because he's always armed. And, and um, yeah, he was, he was a free one for me, sort of in a Dickensian way. That the, the secondary characters in Dickens often turn out to be quite vivid because they're only there to do a couple of things, and the strokes that you expend in, in, in creating secondary characters have to, be cons- have to be fairly concise and precise, but they're free in a way. Whereas when you're creating a character who you're going to deal with through the entirety of your book, your sense of obligation is much more profound. That's an interesting observation. You know, I, I had never thought about it that way, that you really do have to... The, a secondary character has a certain amount of freedom that, that your narrative character doesn't. That's exactly right, because the reader isn't going to be so so demanding that things add up as much as the reader will be demanding that your principal characters add up in logical ways. You know, I, I mentioned that this novel is a crime novel, and I do think it's in, it's so peerless. Um, because of the way everything is dialed back, so much of novel of fiction that has any kind of crime in it has everything like right up front, right in your face, and it's yes. usually way, way over the top. This is in this novel, everything is dialed back and, and kind of rudimentary, and, and I guess these are not the the brightest lights to ever. No, they're aspire not. Aspire to cri- criminal activities. No, they're not. Well, I guess that, that has to do in part with my belief that those dramatic acts that occur to us just happen on a day. They, they, they just happen in the middle of a day that, that could easily contain something else. Uh, the, the robbing of a bank, the murder of two innocent men. It, it, they... The, the circumstance, in a way, plays down their inherent, their inherent drama. I, I think the, what caused me to think this way is, is once, years and years ago, I saw on the news the murder of a, of a, of a news reporter named Wells Hangen. And he, this was in, I don't know if it was, well, it was in Central America somewhere. He was covering a story. And he walked out into a street where there, where there was a standoff. And he was told to lie down. And he lay down. And a man walked up to him very calmly, just not seeming to be uh, threatening in any way, and shot him in the head. 
and and it, and, and it, it it was so casual. It it happened without any great obvious drama. And there, his life ended, and it was it was filmed just as you would be filming five or six other things that would be happening, but no one got killed. And it made a huge impression on me at the time. How casual can be the taking of a human life? When you set about to write, you started this novel some... Uh, 20, 1989. 19, <laughs> 20 more... Before you were born. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, I was at it. But uh, that that said, um, did you see it as a as a work of crime fiction? Yes, you did. Always, 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 I did. Because I wanted to, as I said before, I wanted to have the opportunity to describe those crimes. I, I thought, for me, as I said, that was going to be one of the great delights of writing this book. I mean, I was chiefly interested in something else. I was chiefly interested in the consequences of in life, these acts. But the acts have to occur in the book, and so I was looking forward in every instance to the acts themselves as I could describe them, even though they weren't principally what I was interested in. You know, basically the kidnapping of a 15-year-old boy who is then taken across the border into Saskatchewan from Montana, uh, I was just, I was dying to to write that. you know, I love, too, the, the perception of crime from the perspective not of the criminals and not of the victims, but of the bystanders who know the criminals. This is a really unusual uh, perspective that we just don't see enough of. And it's so fascinating because those people, uh, Dell is, is in many ways, he's just one kind of victim after another, though he never really feels himself to be such. Right. I don't know if you know Auden's poem, which is called Le Musée de Beaux-Arts. And Le Musée de Beaux-Arts is is a wonderful poem, not very long, and it talks about farmers who are standing on a hillside looking out out of the ocean where, I can't remember if it's Icarus or Daedalus, I think it's Icarus, is flying too near the sun and falls into the sea. And... That was a poem that made a huge impression on me because the farmers are basically, they see it, but they're more or less unaffected by it. Here is this life, this great dramatic event, this man with with, with, with these wings of wax falling into the ocean, and they are just over on their farm plot doing what farmers do. Just was, Again, it was an image which made such an impact on me. I'm sure that it's what inspired that aspect of this book. That's so interesting. As you created the, the the characters in this book and and developed them, could you talk about did they did you know everybody at once, or did did people pop up out of these landscapes that you explored as as you wrote? Nobody popped up, uh, I, which isn't to say that in another book people don't pop up. Mm-hmm. I had such a long run up to this book. Mm-hmm. I had such a long experience with thinking about writing this book that I pretty well had things plotted out who would be who and where they would turn up in the book completely before I started to write it I mean I don't know if that makes the book any better I don't know if if people popped up and adventitiously and that would maybe that makes the book more exciting that just isn't how this book happened 
had a long, as I say, long time to think about Florence, the little small character to the side, and Charlie Quarters, and the the Mormon woman that um, Dell meets on the street with her little daughter. I had all those people in mind well before I started this book. And I love the 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 antagonist in in Saskatchewan. Arthur Remlinger. Arthur Remlinger. Probably the hardest character I I was I asked myself to write. I, that was one. That was a, a that was a challenge to me in some way because I've never known anybody like that in my life, and I never probably felt that I got it as right as I should have gotten it. Though I certainly applied myself as much as I possibly could. I really wanted a character of pure evil who did not look to be pure evil. I have this perception that if the devil went around dressed as the devil in a red suit with a tail and horns, we would all stay away from him. But what I needed was a character who was evil, who was at the same time seductive, who was attractive to Dell, who Dell wanted to draw closer to. That was that was it. that was an interesting thing to me to to perceive, and it, but it didn't make doing it any simpler for me. Well, I I love too the way that, again, that Dell gets to know him through kind of this external characterization and, and things that Dell doesn't understand, but we do, and that is so fascinating, so much fun to read. Uh, there's a lot of interesting historical notes in aspects of that part of the narrative. That must have required a bit of research on your part. It was the first idea I had when I hatched this book, which was that this guy, Arthur Remlinger, would be a person who was involved in the right-to-work movement and who was an anti-union zealot, and, and that it was on the, on the strength of this kind of what I consider to be sort of a mindlessness. On the strength of that mindlessness, he would be capable of committing all kinds of violent acts. That was really right at the origins of this book, which, which then thereafter shocked me when I couldn't completely, on first try, get him right on the page, because I had thought about him so long. I sort of had a very clear idea of who he would be and why he would do what he would do and where he would come from and how he grew up. Then the moment when I had to bring him into the book, I, I was just polaxed in a way. I thought, God, I, this isn't how this should be. You, you make all these preparations, you get to the moment to write something. He should just, as you say, flow off the end of your pen. It just didn't work that way. I had to take six weeks off. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I thought, why isn't this happening more easily? I just, so I just finally, after sort of beating my head against it for about a week, I just said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll take some time off and I'll come back to you. And, and I didn't take some time off and push the, push the rest of the book ahead. I, st- I stayed stopped right there for about mm, five weeks. The upshot of this is a character who seems uh, completely there on the page and in our in our hearts. And, and you couldn't tell me things that I'm happier to hear. And, and he's also quite terrorizing. I think it's one of the one of the things I think that's really interesting about this book is the the way in which it's quite horrific in without ever expending any effort to to be horrific. Well, I think that that's what lets those kinds of horrors inhabit us in a way, which is our apparent casualness in their presence. That's, that, that's how they get inside of us. Again, if the devil looked like the devil, we would fear him less. 
But because he doesn't, because he looks like every day, because uh, Arthur Rimlinger looks to Dell for a time like a man who can take the place of his father, he allows this man to draw closer to him and allows him to draw Dell into a terrible event, the murder of two men right in front of him. So many of the details that you have are so evocative and, and so atmospheric. Are these things that you like go and dig up yourself, or do they just are these well, sure. felicities of language? <laughs> well, they start off as they start off as, as I said, the experience of driving around a landscape mm. and and seeing things that you might want to have the reader see when the reader pictures something as she or he is reading. It turns out, as you say, also, it turns out to be an excursion into choosing words and to balancing sentences and to making sentences that have some syncopation to them rather than just creating a mental picture. Uh, I mean, another writer could could do the same things uh, as, is in, as is done in this book and probably do it as well. But because I'm interested in language, I'm doing it in my own way. I'm choosing words that, that, that have... That, that have weight, that have, again, syncopation, that have certain kinds of rhythms, because that's what pleases me. I mean, I think where the rubber meets the road for a, a reader in a book is language, word by word by word by word. Somebody else who's writing a book might think about that differently. Somebody else is maybe just trying to paint uh, a pristine mental picture and can do it with, with different language, with a different access to language. But for me, being dyslexic, being a slow reader as I am, uh, choosing words is, is crucial. Well, that, I think, goes into the other thing this book does. It's kind of hermetic. Well, and... it should be. Novels are hermetic. Novels hold you in themselves until they're ready to turn you loose. I mean, they, they in a way... The um, Walter Benjamin has a wonderful essay called The Storyteller in which he talks about that very thing, that, that, that novels, and, and Benjamin makes a distinction between novels and stories, but, but, but novels in an artificial way substitute themselves for your whole life for the period of time that you as the reader are within them, whereas stories do something different temporally. Um, but but novels try to make uh, themselves commensurate with the world. It's world building. It is, but then but it's it's world building, but not world substituting, because right. ultimately, it has to release you back with something that you didn't have when you started. But it must release you back. Now, what project are you working on now? Zero. Zero. This is enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, their life has to come first. Uh, for 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 me, I I don't bounce out of one project into another project. I'm I'm usually pretty emptied out by writing a novel, so that it takes a mm, couple of years to think about something else that I would want to do, and so and also to think about whether or not it's at my age, sixty eight, whether or not it's worth doing again at all. I'm telling you it's worth doing again. Well, <laughs> please. I don't want to fall face forward on my desk, you know. I want to fall <laughs> fall, fall, fall dead in some other way. 
so is Terrence Malick making this into a movie? Gosh, Terry Malick, wouldn't that be great? It's, it has the feel of his movies. Well, it does because you you, you see those big you see those big landscapes that he mm-hmm. likes so so much. Uh, yeah, no, nobody's taking an interest in this as a movie. Uh, I I think somebody ultimately at least will try because it's 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 fairly vivid uh, visually. And it's got a lot of event in it. But I didn't write it for that reason, Rick. I wrote it only for this book that we have between us right now. And as a reading experience, it excels any other kind of artistic experience that you could have. That's why books are so powerful. I, I, I agree. I agree. I've been speaking with Richard Ford. His new book is Canada. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.